Welcome to the Sicilian Secret Diet Plan Podcast. This podcast is written and presented to you by husband and wife team Dr. Sandra Camerata and Dr. Giovanni Campanile. Sandra is a psychiatrist and was born and raised in Sicily, and Giovanni is a cardiologist. They have written the Sicilian Secret Diet Plan book and podcast in order to introduce a wider audience to the wonderful taste and health benefits of the Sicilian Mediterranean diet, which will lead you onto a path of longevity and improved health span, the reduction of disease in the later part of your life. The goal is to live not only longer, but better with improved vitality and joy of life. Their motto is Be Well Deliciously. We're very pleased to present to you Dr. Nir Barzilay. His resume is really impressive. He is the Chaired Professor of Medicine and Genetics and Director of the Larger Center for Studies of the Biology of Aging. He is the Principal Investigator of the Einstein-Nathan Schock Center and the Glenn Center. Dr. Barzilay, is the recipient of an NIH Merit Award aiming to extend the lifespan of rodents via biological interventions. He also studies families of centenarians, and his findings have provided genetic and biological insights on the mechanisms of aging. He is the author of over 270 peer-reviewed papers and a recipient of numerous prestigious awards, including the 2010 Irving Wright Award of Distinction in Aging Research and the 2018 Epson Longevity Award. He's leading the TAME trial, targeting taming aging with metformin, a multicentral study to prove the concept that multimorbidities of aging can be delayed in humans. He's the founder of Cobar, and he is the medical advisor for life biosciences. He's on the board of AFAR and founding member of the Academy for Lifespan and Healthspan. He has been featured in many papers, TV programs, documentaries, TEDx, TEDMED, and has been consulting and speaking at the Singapore Prime Minister Office, several international banks, the Vatican, PepsiCo, Milking Institute, The Economist, and Wired Magazine. And he is the author of a wonderful book, Age Later, that was published in 2020. Yes, uh, what an amazing uh, bio. And this is going to be an amazing conversation with Nier. We're going to talk about many, many things regarding anti-aging, health span expansion, and longevity. We're going to talk about what's the difference between biological versus chronological age. We're also going to talk about the global effect of modifiable risk factors on aging and cardiovascular disease. And also, is it possible already to reverse aging and uh, make an impact on aging? We'll talk about a super interesting concept called antagonistic playotropy, which means that certain things that may be good for you when you're young may not be good for you when you're older and vice versa. And this is uh, very much associated with certain factors in anti-aging. We'll mention about the UK Biobank and the All of Us Initiative in the United States, the importance of insulin-like growth factor on aging, the Longevity's Genes Project, also Nier's work on the offspring of Centenarian, how this is important and sheds light on the meaning of 
the genetics of becoming a centenarian. We'll also mention about the New England Centenarian Study and the New England Super Centenarian Study, the concept of compression or morbidity, where all the disease is concentrated at the very, very end of life. And this is really the key component of improving health span. We'll also mention about ClinVar, the TAME trial, which is a metformin as a tool to target aging, hyperbaric oxygen, and how this show there's significant research showing improvement in longevity, how metformin is a drug that not only may affect aging, but also is uh, antiviral and affects COVID in a positive way, uh, can reduce risks of long COVID. He'll mention a little bit about uh, Brian Johnson and Project Blueprint. And then at the end, Nir will tell us what he does for his own life and which you may incorporate into your routine. And he'll also mention about the new society that he has helped organize, the Healthy Longevity Medicine Society, how intermittent fasting is helpful to promote longevity. Something that I am super interested in is artificial intelligence electrocardiograms and how this can measure biological and chronological age, the longevity dividend, and the work by the economist Andrew Scott and his book, The 100-Year Life, how longevity could be a $56 trillion opportunity. And then finally, how centenarians or people that make it to a certain age have great outlooks on life. Their personalities are good and they're very happy as opposed to us fearing what can happen at the end of life. Most centenarians are very content. So without further ado, let's listen to this amazing and super interesting conversation with Dr. Nir Barzilay. Good morning, Nir. Uh, thank you. This is an honor and a privilege to uh, speak to you. You know, this uh, health span and uh, longevity is very much part of Sandra and I's practice. So uh, we're very excited to speak to you. Well, it's nice to be in the same army and fighting the same war. What can I tell you? We'll win. Yeah. <laughs> we might not be there to see the victory uh, lap to, to participate in that, but we're definitely going to be there. So uh, what, tell us, tell our listeners, what has been your journey? What has taken you, how, how did you get to be so interested in this research that is so helpful to all humanity, to all of us? So, so you know, I, I have a book, Age Later, where I'm telling about my, my journey, and I'll tell you just two things of it, but all right. <laughs> but, but I have to say... I have to say that I kind of changed how I'm talking about it. Instead of answering the question, if somebody asks me, and I'm not talking about you, I said, <clears throat> just a minute, <clears throat> why wouldn't you be interested in aging? I mean, what is it in aging that you like? You know, the fact that you'll get a disease and it can be a bad disease and the treatment and you'll actually get a second disease and a third disease and your quality of life will be will be bad. I mean, what is it that you don't want to know about aging, right? Um, and, I, and I think that's part of the trip is for people to accept that, okay, de death is inevitable, I, I think for now, in our, you know, for our journey, but, but aging is not the way it is. I think there are two things that I would mention in my, uh, in my journey. And the first one is uh, that we say that kids have 
imagination, but I think most kids uh, don't see themselves becoming their grandparents, right? They're like, where are they coming from? You know, what happened to them? Uh, and, and I think this is something that really stuck with me. And I have to say that I, it's amazing to me how in the last 10 years, young people have been interesting, have been interested in aging so much more and are concerned and are seeing their grandparents. Maybe there are more grandparents around, but they are seeing the challenges of aging, but it, it wasn't the case for me. I think the second most important thing was that when I was a, a, a resident in internal medicine, I had a teacher who stopped us in the beginning of the presentation. You know, the presentation is, you know, a 68-year-old woman who came, and he said, just a minute, does she look older or younger, or younger than her age? And it take, it take, you know, you, what does it mean? She has, you know, infection. But all of a sudden, you started realizing that biological and chronological age are different. And it comes into effect even in clinical practice. You see somebody who's 80 who's like, okay, you know, he, he, nothing is going to help him. Multisystem, right? Multisystem, he looks old. And then you'll see you see an 80 years old, okay, as an architect, but the guy is an athlete, right? <laughs> or something like that. And, and then you start saying, just a minute, <clears throat> if people at the same age can look 20, 30 years apart, we have a biology here that we need to understand, right? And and this is kind of uh, of why I, very early on I thought, you know, I would tell you another thing. Uh, I mean, you're Giovanni, you're a, a cardiologist, right? So you know, actually, today there was a publication about the. I think I think it's in New England about the five things that if you take care of, it's five things that cause. 50% of the cardiovascular disease. Okay, you know, smoking, hypertension, diabetes, you know, non-HDL cholesterol, whatever. Uh, and, okay, I'm looking at you and I don't know what's your HDL cholesterol. I don't know what's your glucose. I don't know what's your blood pressure. Okay, but I know that you're not 20 years old anymore, right? This is really the most interesting biology that we have, okay? Not not those things that we're measuring. They're actually driven by the fact that we age. But the aging is really the underlying cause. It's what drives diseases. Yeah, that's that's interesting because the, you know, is first of all, the question is, is aging a disease? Is it, is it a disease or is it uh, not a disease? And and what can we do about it? That's the, the that's the other, you know, I know you're you're working on this in a big way, but the question is, you know, most of us are not centenarians, right? So most of us are not genetically protected. So, you know, what is the what is the the mindset in for the for the vast majority of people? Um, so th there is the biological answer, <clears throat> uh, the biological genetical, you know, genetical answer. And there's the political answer, okay? The the biological answer is that aging is the mother of those age-related diseases. It drives them, okay? It drives the heart, the cancer, the cognition, the mortality, okay? This is, aging drives those diseases. Should it be called a disease is very, very different question. 
And on that, my answer is no, or I should reframe it and say not yet. And I'll tell you why, why not. Because older adults don't want to be called sick. What, you're 60 years old and now you're sick? Okay. And what if you're not sick? And if you're sick, what does that mean? We saw what it me meant when, when COVID was around, right? We put those elderly and isolated them and they couldn't see their <laughs> grandchildren. We put them on islands, right? So there is a consequence for calling them names. The AARP doesn't want to call aging a disease. The American Federation for Aging Research, which I'm their scientific director, doesn't want to call aging a disease. And most important, the FDA doesn't want to call aging a disease. And the reason, that, so our basically the people that we target don't want us to call them a disease, but we found out, and I think we all agree, it doesn't prevent the progress, okay? We know we know what we need to do. Uh, maybe it's not time to fight the political game, but we know what we have to do. And even with the FDA, when we talk to the FDA, okay, we don't tell them our hypothesis is if we target aging, we prevent not one disease, not two, we'll prevent a lot of diseases and conditions, okay? Uh, but for them, it's also if we can, is only if we can prevent a cluster of age related diseases, that's okay. They're not going to call it aging. You know, for us, it's porn. We know what it is when we see it. If they if they don't want to put uh, blinds, it's fine. But, but the question is, if, you know, we can prevent some of the diseases of aging that come with aging. Or premature but, aging. Oh, when is the time to intervene? Because we start aging from day one, right? They want, we start our life with aging, the process of aging. So when do you, we intervene and what does it mean to, to be able to protect, if we can, the diseases of aging? Uh, yeah, well, th that's, that's, that's a really uh, good question. And I think the answer is that there's, um, there are stages of aging um, and each one is a different intervention. So l let me try and give examples and, and, and this will kind of explain my weird answer. Okay. It's not, it's not, there's one thing and it accelerates and we have to do something about it. It's, it's a little bit more complex than then, but I will tell you this. Um, I think if I go 50 years ahead, okay, 50 years ahead kind of put me in a position that if not, if what I'm saying is not true, it's not going to matter to my life anymore. <laughs> so, but I think 50 years from now, um, a 20-year-old person will come and get a treatment, might be an injection, every few months or every year to kind of clean the genetic epigenetic landscape of aging and basically will grow old very, very slow, you know, if at all. Okay. In other words, I think the best time to prevent aging is from the beginning. Um, but, you know, what happened in the meantime to all of us who age, right? And, and I'll, I'll give you two, two examples what, that will kind of exemplify. So one of the, and, and I'll tell you th this fountain of youth, this idea that we take and 
80-year-old and make them 20-year-old is, is kind of difficult biologically to accept, okay? But we can improve health at any age, okay? I think that that's pretty clear. We improve age at any age. The, the biological thing in 80 years old that I, that I think we haven't totally proven it in humans, some things are coming up, is the development of what we call senescent cells or known also as zombie cells. Uh, those are cells that either have stopped dividing or there was something wrong that happened in the cell and it protects from cancer and it just stopped dividing. But when they accumulate, uh, when a lot of them accumulate, they're actually harmful to the environment. They're associated with more cancer. So um, there is a way to use uh, treatments in order to remove or kill those cells that in animals improve their health. Uh, it, you know, they, they don't live much longer. Uh, actually, they, 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 they don't live longer at all, but they live much better, okay? So there is a way to target something that wouldn't be good at a 20-year-old. In, in fact, could be even dangerous for 20-year-old. But you can intervene in this thing that, that's called aging. And another example is, or, or really another concept is that um, you, there, there is an hypothesis in aging that's called antagonistic pleiotrophy. Things that are good for you when you're young are bad for you when you're old. You know, cholesterol metabolism is really terrific. You develop cells, you develop uh, gonads, you know, you uh, it's important for everything. But if you have high cholesterol metabolism when you're old, uh, you'll get a coronary disease, right? So there is antagonism, uh, antagonism, and this antagonism happens, let's say, some, somewhere at the age of 50. Now, I don't want a 50-year-old to, to worry because I said there's biological age, so I'm just telling you. What, 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 I'm just picking a, an age, but the age I'm picking is based on data that we took from a very good uh, information source, and this is called the, the UK Biobank. A lot of us are harvesting it. Um, there's actually a biobank that's that's uh, being created in the United States. I think it's called All of Us or something like that, where you know a lot of people are getting kind of the same questionnaire they're having blood tests and there's a sophisticated way um, to look and analyze them and it's open to the public so every questions that you're interested in, instead of getting 50 people you'll you'll get uh, you know th thousands or ten thousands of people for a question oh okay I'm, I'm i'm telling you a big question just because i i i think i think what i'm saying next is important so we went to this uk biobank and we found measurements of IGF-1, which is a growth hormone. And we basically have shown that when you have high IGF-1 level, when you have this high uh, effect of growth hormone, it protects you from variety of disease and mortality. Okay, the more the better. Then after the age of 50, it switches all of a sudden, the same high IGF-1 is dangerous for you, okay? It cause, it, it's associated with all the diseases and mortality. So 
this is antagonistic pleiotrophy, right? Things that were good for you when you're young, psst, all of a sudden kill you. The reason I'm saying that is because some of the drugs that we have will against aging will be effective only at old age and might be dangerous to you, in fact, in young age. So I think between those examples of the, the Peter Pan that never grows old, the old people that we can do something about them there, or the fact that we have to intervene somewhere in between 80 and 20 uh, is really what we have to consider. It's, it's all very specific and with trade-offs also. Yeah, that, that, you know, we interviewed uh, Walter Longo for the podcast, and he made an interesting observation on, on some of the people he's worked with that the um, some of these very super centenarians, um, and in the opposite of what you're talking about is that something that was bad for them when you're young may be good for you when you're old. What he found was what he was talking about is that some of these uh, uh, people after a certain age, ninety or whatever, they started eating a lot more meat and a lot more uh, things that, you know, proteins. If you, proteins that maybe when you were younger, if you did that, it would be harmful for you. But for them, it was good for them. So the sort of the opposite of this. And and also I like to have, you know, you know, one of the things that I do, I'm a preventive cardiologist. I do a lot of work on reversal disease. I've worked with Dean Ornish. I was the director of the Dean Ornish program for the East Coast. So the <clears throat> um, reversal of disease uh, like reversal of coronary disease, you know, I think would be very important for as an anti-aging. So is that something like, and it can't just be coronary disease. It has to be, you know, brain disease. It has to be cancer, you know, reversal of disease, of established disease. Is that part of the of this uh, approach to anti-aging? Um, so, so first of all, I, I, I want to uh, tell you something. Again, it's more it, it's more political, maybe, but there's a lot there's a lot of noise around aging. There's a lot of noise around aging, and for us biologists or academician, anti aging is kind of when you use anti aging, it's kind of our enemy. Okay, we call us ourselves geroscientists. What we're trying to uh, talk about is geroprotectors. You're talking a lot about geroprotectors or gerotherapeutics. Okay, so I just want to tell you that. The, the, the second thing is, again, back to the point that if aging drives the diseases, you hope that if you uh, target aging in every cell, every organ, then you're going to do better all over. And not not only specific on on one. I would I would take statin as an example. For me, statin is not an anti-aging, as you said it, or it's not a gerotherapeutics. And not that it's not important. It's an extremely important tool. But for me, the question is: if I give it to animals, do they live longer? And the answer is not. It doesn't. It doesn't target any of what we call the hallmarks of aging, uh, and so uh, you know it's not going to help the liver or the kidney or 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 something else. It's really much more of a heart specific. By the way, I know that it's not totally the whole truth of what I'm saying because statins change inflammation. You know, I mean there are other things, but for me the test 
does it target the biology of aging enough to be called gerotherapeutic? So that, that's the example of between specific uh, organ stuff and, 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 uh, and targeting the aging as a concept in every cell, every organ, and the whole body. So I guess the, the next question is, what is a centenary? Is a centenary someone that is really, truly different from all of us, genetically, epigenetically? And uh, my guess is that you're studying them, and you were saying, you ha- I have, and I liked when you said, I have 750 of them, which I, I like because it seems that those are your babies, the, the, the ones you're really paying a lot of attention to. So are they different from the rest of us, and uh, and why are we studying them? Yeah. O- okay. First of all, you know, I- I'm regretting I said I because I have a team, and it's we. <laughs> okay, it's always we, and I and I hate when I hear myself and said I I. But I, it's really not about me. There, there are tons of people who are doing uh, this research and advancing it, and I actually have two studies. One is. Uh, you know, going to the homes of centenarians and seeing what's happening to them and asking them tons of questions, taking their blood and seeing what's their DNA. But actually, I think much more important is a study that I have on the offspring of their centenarians. And then you compare them to usually their spouse, if unless they have also longevity in their family. And, and I would tell you that by doing that, I'll say one thing and I can answer more questions, but the children of centenarians who are the same age are actually 10 years biologically younger. And they have half their mortality, half the cognitive decline, half the, you know, and we're into their late 70s now. So, so, uh, so, and it kind of tell you also the genetics. But I, I, but I want to say, and, and I'm going to tell you why and what I found in centenarians, but one point I'd like to tell you because you're going into this this venture and I, I want to tell you really very bluntly that I don't care much about what is what do I discover in the centenarians except their history and their genetics. And the reason is, that if I go to centenarians and let's take, I, t- I take a little bit of their blood and I'm looking at something, okay? And let's say it's high. It's high because of potential two reasons. One is it predicts their mortality and 30% of them will die next year. Or it presents something that got them there, right? The, the answer I know because of their offspring Actually, the best answer is HDL cholesterol. And actually, HDL cholesterol is not high in centenarians, but it's common. It's similar to HDL centenarians of every age. But we know that actually HDL uh, cholesterol uh, declines uh, by five points every eight years. So it should have been low. When we look at their offspring, their offspring HDL is very high usually. Okay, statistically, very high. So you can see that probably they started with high HDL cholesterol and it went down. And now when they're almost going to die, it's kind of normal. If it'll go down, they'll probably die. Okay. But the point is the phenotype of 100 years old when they're 100 years old 
is not of so much interest and I wouldn't do any biological determination based base on that, okay? Because I don't know if it's because they are dying or because they got there, okay? Okay, saying that, um, and and I I look at I look at your faces. I see you're going to cut out what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but 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 and and you know I'm just talking from a biological perspective. I I love the centenarians. Okay. No, no. And, and I, I, go ahead. Yeah, I think that's okay. super important. So we had three questions with the centenarians. Okay. Uh, the or 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 you know be, before before the three questions i i actually tell you answer that is much more important because one question was are the centenarians do they get diseases when everybody gets diseases and now they live longer with the disease which is really not the point we're trying to make or is their health span and lifespan did it go together and the answer is yes it goes together in fact the centenarians have diseases 50 years later than their cohort and 20 to 30 years later than their children cohort okay and and we've published it and we've published it also with tom pearls who has the new england centenarian studies and we harmonize the data and it's really incredible so it's not only that they live longer they live healthier it's not only that they live healthier they have a compression of morbidity they're sick very little time at the end of their lives, right? We have diseases five, eight years on average, they few weeks or few months. 30% of our centenarians don't have any disease. They don't take any drug and some of them just not waking up in the morning. So the concept that we have people in this world that are healthy, healthy, healthy and die is really the concept that we're trying to sell, okay? That's what we want. we want to do. We cannot promise you you'll be 100 years old, but if, you know, pick an age, if if we can tell you, okay, you'll die, I don't know, at age 85, but you wouldn't have a disease, uh, I, I think people will, will choose that. And our lifespan as a, as, 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 a, as, a, as humans, as, as a human species, statistically is 115 years, right? I mean, statistically, there, we know that people live longer than that. And we're dying in the United States at age 76. So there's a lot to realize even before talking about, you know, the Peter Pan. You know, maybe Peter Pan will break this 115, but uh, there's a lot of years that we have to realize and we have to start doing it now. Well, that, that's when it probably could be considered a disease is that when you don't make it beyond a certain age, like 70, 75, then, it, then aging is a disease that rather than... All aging is a disease. But the question is, how do we do that? Are we doing that because we are uh, interfering with our genetic possibility to be 150? Are we doing something throughout our lives that we are interfering with this genetic protective, yeah. you know, and that's in the United States, there must be some potential centenaries that we are not... Uh, help to flourish to that age, or we don't have them, or we don't have very little of them, because we know that there are pockets in the world, and there are pockets. So are they pockets because they're isolated in terms of uh, 
a no pollution, uh, good nutrition, good lifestyle, or because their pockets, so they are marrying each other, and they have good these good genes that keep on right, right, reduce it, right, right, uh, ex exactly the question. So let me tell you, in our population, um, the the w w what we what we so the 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 first thing is do did they do uh, things right like 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 we tell people to do now you know did they you know avoided smoking their diet was good you know they exercised and the answer in our centenarians is absolutely not uh, over 50% of them were overweight or obese and still are um 60% of the men and 30% of the women were smoking for you know heavy smoker for a long time i have a woman who died at 110 and she smoked for 95 years almost non-stop right so in fact for her what's the story of your uh, longevity smoking <laughs> okay <laughs> um uh, exercise even moderate exercise uh, like walking, biking, houseworks, housework, uh, less than 50%, vegetarian, less than 3%. So, and, 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 you know, you're very, you have to be very careful in how, how you say it. And actually, Jay Leno made such a big joke out of it in the Tonight Show uh, because he said, you know, the secret to longevity is to smoke and be obese and say, <laughs> you know, so no, the centenarians could could afford to do many things and still get to to age 100 so the second question was okay you know maybe they don't have genes for diseases okay maybe you know we all have genotypes not all some of us have genotypes that are risk for heart and for for cancer and for uh uh, uh you know dementia maybe maybe they had uh, less genes for diseases and that's all you need you know if you don't have that you kind of fly through and the answer was so surprising for us we did our first whole genome sequencing in 44 of our centenarians that was long ago when it was so expensive and we didn't have control for that we just had the centenarians but we had a database that had that had all the big the 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 genotypes that will it's it's called ClinVar and it has all the genotypes that are most likely to give you a disease. And we said, look, maybe centenarians will will have zero of those. We didn't expect the fact that our forty four centenarians had a. 230 genotypes among them you know five six genotype for each one that was associated with diseases and they were not small genotypes we have centenarians who are apoe4 homozygote which really apoe4 usually means that you're most probably become demented when you're 60 70 and dead at 80 and they're at 100 not demented okay so Nutrition not, they don't have what we call the perfect genome. So what is it that protects them 
against uh, aging. And then we started to find what we publicly call longevity genes. And it's actually very misleading because it's not that some people have an extra gene that we don't have. It's really changes or variants or mutations on your genes that are uh, having consequences. And like a polygenic risk score. Uh, well, uh, yeah, yes, yes. It's it's like a polygenic risk for except that there are many ways to become a centenarian. Okay, we have uh, uh, dozens of genotypes like that in groups of our centenarians that are functional. Okay, they have function. But not all of them are on the same pathway. I'll give you an example so that it's not uh, too too complicated, but 60% of our centenarians have mutations that are making their growth hormone ineffective. 60% of our centenarians. and I said I gave before the example that growth hormone is important for you when you're young, and then turns against you when you're old. This is a very important thing to know and to target. And we actually took it back and showed in animal that we have antagonism for the growth hormone. They live healthier and longer. Um, with with by the way, a drug that developed for human for cancer, it didn't work, but. Uh, and it's an antibody against IGF-1 receptor, this growth hormone. Uh, uh, Also, uh, in our centenarians, those that have the the lowest IGF-1 level, the the lowest half of IGF-1 level, they live twice as long. They're already centenarians, okay, so who cares? But they live twice as long as those that have the highest level. This, this, is, this is IGF-1 at rest, correct? Uh, not when you're exercising and- well, Yeah, no, no, when not, not when you're exercising. IGF-1 is not really reactive to, uh, it is not reactive acutely. And actually growth hormone in older people is also not reactive acutely. IGF-1 comes from growth hormone, but also is produced by cells themselves in different organs. Okay, so IGF comes from different sources, but this IGF is a marker, if you want, of health or longevity, depends what level you, you're you looking at. And this is w- one of the most common, as I said, 60% of the centenarians have something on growth hormone receptor, on IGF receptor. By the way, Walter Longo, I, I don't know if he talked with you about that, but that was uh, something that he's interested um, the Laurent Dwarfs. Yeah, the Laurent syndrome, yes. They have a growth hormone receptor. By the way, we have uh, 11% of our centenarians have a deletion of exome 3 in the growth hormone receptor. Okay, so we, we have Laurent Dwarfs, we have centenarians. So this is a pathway that uh, that really comes through. And so stunning uh, growth is something that really allows you to get to uh, older age. So Again, I, I, I just uh, talked a lot, but 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 I, I kind of said that it wasn't the environment for them, uh, and it's right. still very important for us. It wasn't for them. It wasn't that they had the perfect genome. They actually have 
genetics to get them there. And so I think even in those blue zones, uh, I think those blue zones allow more people to get to be centenaires. Okay, there is an environmental factor that, but even in the blue zones, I believe that the 100 years old are have a genetics uh, to them. It's not it's not just the environment. Well, I think that you know what you're saying is, and this is the way I look at it. You tell me if I'm wrong. Um, that centenarians are like supermen. You know, they're super people. They whatever they do, you know, they can be obese, they can smoke, and nothing. They can't even hurt themselves. It's the rest of us. You know, what, you know, the most people are not centenarians. So, you know, I look at this as universal precautions, like AIDS or something like this. You know, or it's a terminal disease. What do we do to prevent that? Uh, you know, to mimic that. You know, what do we do? Like, is it the lifestyle changes that we do because we have to? You know, we don't know each and each individual doesn't really know if they're a centenarian or not, right? So you have to assume you're not a centenarian and do all these other things. So how much does that help us when we do the correct lifestyle change? Well, our, our uh, okay. How much does it help us? First of all, you summarize it beautifully. How much does it help us? I'm throwing it straight back to you. My my mission is to find what is the genetic. You know, we I think we all agree that aging is eighty percent environment and twenty percent genetics. Okay, my point of view: if I understand those twenty percent genetics, I can protect from eighty percent of the environment. Okay, I mean. I don't want to say that I'll give you a drug and you don't have to exercise and stop smoking and stuff like that, okay? But but this is this is what I'm I'm thinking. The clear thing for us is that there we can maximize our health without genes, okay? By exercising, by diet, by sleeping, and by social connectivity, right? We're we're on the same boat on that, right? <laughs> and that's huge, okay? I'm kind of talking. Uh, about about okay, w- where is the next horizon for us? And you're, you're talking about these gerotherapeutics, and I you know well, this gets to your tri- you know the big trial you're doing, the tame trial. Uh, <clears throat> you know, and I think if I understand it correctly, the purpose of the tame trial, I know you're studying metformin, but it's really not to study metformin; it's to study whether we can affect aging. <clears throat> correct? And I, I know. Uh, so I, I I would love to, you know, if you can explain what the, the purpose, what the trial is, the purpose of the trial, and, and exactly what the, the bigger picture is in terms of the outcomes. Right. So first of all, you're right. Metformin is a tool, okay? It happens to be the best tool because what we're doing with metformin has already been done, okay? Metformin has prevented diabetes in a clinical trial, has prevented a cardiovascular disease in a clinical trial has prevented the cognitive decline, is associated with less cancer and everything. So all this has been done. We're packaging it. So the the real the real thing that I'm doing is not what you said, and it's only to get the FDA to approve aging as an indication. Okay, this is the reason we're doing the trial. Because... Um, the proof of concept for me is not important. The proof of concept is important in the packaging, but it's not really the main thing we're doing. It's for the FDA to come and say that because then 
healthcare providers will not say if there is an indication like that healthcare providers will have to provide her other otherwise they'll say you know no you know you know good for you but this is not an approved treatment and and they they, they actually do say although metformin one of the advantage of metformin is that it's the cheapest drug in the formulary you know i think Everybody who says uh, aging is about rich people and stuff. No, metformin is the cheapest. Okay, everybody will afford, healthcare provider will will take you there. If healthcare providers will give you gerotherapeutics, then the pharmaceuticals will jump in and develop more drugs, better drugs, combination of drugs, and will really start to realizing better our potential for 115 years. But this is really why we're doing the, the tame to demonstrate that this revolution is possible and that we get everybody on our boat. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a completely different concept than pharmaceutical companies have thought of up to date. You know, like metformin, I guess, affects so many different pathways. And, you know, up to now, we focus like one drug, one pathway, one molecule. But this is like a real, you know, big picture kind of thing where, you know, one drug can affect many, many different outcomes, which is not the way we, you know, as doctors or as pharmaceutical companies, we've thought about these things in the past. So, so, um, what what we are talking about in the biology, we're talking about the hallmarks of aging. Hallmarks of aging are things that change with aging, and when we reverse it in animals or in humans, we get an extension of health span or lifespan in animals. Okay, that's how, how, how we get there. The gerotherapeutic, okay, the interesting thing about those hallmarks, they are interactive in the sense you can you can target one hallmark and you'll affect several of the others. Metformin is not the only drug. There are three drugs like that, at least, that affects not one, not two of the hallmarks, but all the hallmarks. Uh, Because I'm really responding to the fact it has so many effects. Now, and that's rapamycin. And what's the third one? Rapamycin is the same, and SGLT2 inhibitors. SGLT2, right. Okay. Um, So people are saying, oh, really? Metformin happens to target all all the hallmarks of aging, but really what happens, metformin is a drug that takes a cell or an organ or a body and makes it younger. And when it makes it younger, many things are improving. Okay, so you get effects of all the hallmarks because those hallmarks are interactive with, with each other. But for me, that's exactly how I define gerotherapeutics. Statins are not going to affect all the hallmarks, maybe the inflammation hallmark or something, okay? But it's not going to affect all the hallmarks. The true gerotherapeutics are affecting all the hallmarks. And for me, that's the reason to go to clinical trial when I have something like something like that. The question is, what are all the hallmarks that we're looking at um, that metformin affects and are we targeting then 50 years old and <clears throat> and older? Because that's you said when the change happens. And what is the impact on the IGF, which is what the, the, the centenarian have less of, correct? Right. Yeah. right. Uh, 
can, can you release me? I'll show a slide. Can you release me? I, I need the host to allow me to do that. Oh, sure. sure. Let me put that up one second. Show captions. What are we doing with that? We're not very good at this. <laughs> Participants. Share screen. Uh, I'm not sure what we do that. Probably have to put share screen. Okay, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to show you all the hallmarks because this will be blah blah blah. Okay, <laughs> if I don't have the slide, it's okay. Uh, so. So, uh, so, I'll, but so, but I can answer you the the second uh, part of the question. So, we're we're saying that uh, metformin uh, targets uh, all the hallmarks, um, but one of the things that so re remember this antagonistic pleiotropy hypothesis of aging: the things that are good for you when you're young are bad for you yes. when you're old. But it's also true that if you do something to old people. If you do the same to young, it's bad for them. There are trade-offs to the other side. Metformin, who was studied in, in clinical studies usually after the age of 50, that was the, you know, that was the criteria. Actually, the, the population were in their late 60s or 70s sometimes, which is after the age of 50. Um, metformin decreased, for example, IGF-1 level, which we don't want to do in young people. Metformin in some men decreased testosterone. Testosterone is good for you when 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 you're young. So metformin is an example of actually a drug that I think you should take after the age of fifty, unless uh, you're uh, obese, uh, diabetic, or women with PCOS that uh, get also lower testosterone le uh, uh, level. That is good for them and good for elderly, but not for the rest of us. So. Uh, I think metformin, metformin is exactly this thing. And, and one of the things that really I'm, I'm so upset sometimes when people are telling me, you know, I'm, I'm a 37-year-old bodybuilder and I'm getting metformin. Well, that's not, I don't think that's good for your goals in life, okay? Um, we know from elderly study that uh, if you exercise elderly with and without metformin, those with metformin have less muscle as response because actually metformin lowers uh, mTOR, which is a sensor that is very important for muscle building, okay? And it's effect on and, complex one, is that correct, the, the way that works? Well, I, I think it actually affects complex four. It's a new thing that's emerging that ah. really doesn't matter. You know, doesn't matter really whatever complex it does, you know, no matter what, it would do something, um, but, but, but yes, it does. But you know, among uh, among other things, okay. I, I mean, I I cannot tell you if that's necessary for longevity or not. But metformin can do things without AMP kinase, without mitochondria. Okay, it, it can do things. So uh, when, when people are saying we want to develop a complex one inhibitor, I think they're a danger of missing the uh, what metformin is doing otherwise, <laughs> beside uh, targeting a, a complex one or complex four. Um, so I think I, I may have released that ability if you want to put some slides up. Uh, I mean, you can try it. I'm, you know, we're technically incompetent. So. <laughs> no, you didn't. I, I still cannot share. Oh, But that's okay. That's okay. So 
So the um, the tame trial hopefully will show some benefit. Do you think there's enough metformin in the world that if it's a really positive trial, that everyone's going to want to take this? Yes, it's an extract of the French lilac. It's That's generic. Right. Uh, it's easy to produce. Uh, uh, you know, I think you know. It's uh, first of all, not everybody. The trial will come. New England Journal will have it. You think that the next day everybody will be on metformin? Probably not. On the other hand, every day that passes, there are more elderly on metformin because kind of the the thing is out, right? I mean, believe me, people will see this podcast and will ask their doctors for metformin also, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but but I want to say another thing. Metformin was metformin was used in the 1920s, the 1950s for arthritis, to prevent flu, to do many, many uh, other things when it was discovered, when it was discovered in that in di- that in diabetic patient, it lowers glucose, okay? And then it was kind of hijacked to glucose, which is good because that's why we have so many studies and we know w- what metformin is doing. Um I use metformin. I'm, I'm originally from Israel, and when I practiced in Israel in the 80s, I had metformin as a as a major drug. I came to the U.S. I came to Yale for a fellowship um, because companies tried to bring metformin to the United States, but they needed more data to see if it works on Americans also. And um, and at that time, I was looking at the mechanism of action of metformin on diabetes and I was the first one that published the the fact that metformin really targets the liver and not the muscle um and and but I didn't know yet then it was serendipitous and I, and it's only years later that I realized that this is a gerotherapeutic and not really and um, you know also also a glucose lowering uh, drug is there a minimum amount that people with no disease should be taking after 50 yeah, we we don't know. You know, I I'm sure the answer is yes, okay. And I think that there are probably ways to figure it out, uh, but we don't have the dose response of metformin from an aging perspective. There's a dose response of metformin for diabetes perspective. It's sixteen hundred twenty five milligrams, okay. But as I said, I think diabetes is is not really the important target of metformin and 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 we we want to have metformin in non-diabetic uh, patients. Well, I was asking, what do you measure once you start an um a, a healthy 50-year-old on metformin? Non-diabetic. <clears throat> non-diabetic. What do you measure? And yeah, yeah. um I think that you know the biomarkers of aging is a, is a huge field that I'm very much involved also because I have the centenarians and their offspring and and with biomarkers we can see that the offspring of centenarians are 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 healthier but the their biomarkers of aging that are so biomarkers of aging will tell you what's your biological age rather than chronological age, right? If you could take a test for a 50-year-old and he's 40, for example, maybe he doesn't need colonoscopy, okay? On, on the other, if he's 60, let's try and see where his aging reside and let's be more, uh, let's do more intervention. That's That's why we need biomarkers. But for me, this is not the only thing. You need biomarker 
that will change with treatment. Not every biomarker that we have changed with treatment. We have, for example, epigenic, epigenetic biomarkers, you know, clocks, what's known as clocks, and they're not going to reflect change in hemoglobin A1C, but hemoglobin A1C itself is one of the biomarkers that changes. Uh, C-cysteine changes with aging. TNF-alpha receptor changes with aging. There are like five things that will change uh, with aging, and you can measure them, um, uh, but, but we don't have much of that. We do have a, a biomarker that changed with metformin, and it's called GDF-15. And on average, it rises by three and a half fold. And uh, maybe this is going to be an important biomarker to see how much is enough. But I think we're not there. So for me, it's 1500 milligrams because that's that's where that's the dose the studies were done. You know, when the committee met, met on TAME, by the way, the study is called TAME, targeting aging with metformin or taming aging. But we came and 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 we had data on fifteen hundred milligrams, but some said, "Hey, you know, but the elderly, we should give them less." And some said, "No, it's longevity. We should give them more." Okay, and we said, "Okay, you know, we we know that fifteen hundred milligrams has an effect. So why why don't we do fifteen hundred milligrams?" And by the way, fifteen hundred milligrams. Not everybody achieved fifteen hundred milligrams, right? And it is intention to treat. So, you know. Uh, I, I think if you tolerate 500, go and see if you tolerate 1500 because I think it's individual. Let, let, let me give another example with metformin. Three to 6% of the people with metformin have diarrhea after a week of treatment. This is the major side effect of metformin. Um, it is kind of common to people on the first week Certainly, most people will not get diarrhea. Some get early satiety, something else. But but three to six percent of the people will have diarrhea. The reason they have diarrhea is they don't have either genetically or for other reason they don't have expression of the transporters that take metformin and brings it into the cell. Um. So what happens when metformin is in the guts? It cannot be a uh, absorbed and when it's not absorbed it causes diarrhea okay so you don't take metformin because even if it was absorbed it wouldn't get into your cells anyhow okay so i'm, I'm saying there's lots of clinical things that we talk about metformin and although we had it for a long uh, period of time there was no need really to do a dose response so you know take 1500 milligrams so those patients they get diarrhea it's not worth for them to continue it. Is right. That yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, you know, in cardiology, we measure, you know, I measure CIMTs and uh, and that gives us a vascular age of the carotid arteries as a reflection of the entire vasculature of the body. <clears throat> and now we're doing CAT scans with artificial intelligence overread that tell us the same thing about the coronary arteries. Does this, uh, first of all, is vascular age a good, measure of aging in general and number two does metformin affect vascular age um so for, first of all okay i'm going to tell you i'm going to tell you something totally unexpected okay 
totally unexpected. I'm not going to talk about metformin. I'm going to talk about another thing that was incredibly interesting, and it's the effect of hyperbaric oxygen on uh, health and on aging. And I'm sure as a cardiologist, it sounds terrifying that you'll take a, a person and expose them for every day for weeks and months to a oxygen under under you know hyperbaric which means it's not only that you saturated oxygen but it now diffuses into the cell so every cell is going to get oxygen and you cardiologists believe that oxygen is a big toxic thing right and and you want us to take antioxidants right so it makes no sense and it made no sense to me until i realized what's really happening first of all the oxidative the oxidative hypothesis of aging is not a strong hypothesis anymore in the sense that uh, i told you that for us what does it work on the lab for aging if 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 you get mice and increase their oxygen damage or decrease their oxygen damage by a lot of genetic manipulation it doesn't change their lifespan okay now that that doesn't mean it's not important and there are trade-offs and and stuff like that but so oxygen is not a major hypothesis of aging but there are two things that are happening with oxygen and 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 now you'll see why I'm 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 hijacking this this metformin thing there's a 30 to 40% decrease in small vessels disease as you age okay which really means so is it important yeah very important um and it means that we have cells in our body that have lost vasculature they're not dead but they're not alive either and when you give them those pulses of oxygen all, all of a sudden oxygen gets there and wakes them up okay i'm talking on non-biological term but there's biological way to see that so this is one thing that's really important and you can see in particular in the brain you see a, a huge effects but but really what happened when i started hearing clinical studies that showed huge effect of hyperbaric oxygen i purchased hyperbaric oxygen for my labs and we're looking what happened to mice and rats from an aging perspective okay and it's quite incredible there's another thing that happens um actually the best longevity factors are hypoxic you know if somebody strangulates you actually you upgrade a lot of good good things against aging but of course how do you get that uh, what happens in hyperbaric oxygen is it takes it takes you to higher uh, higher higher oxygen and when you go back to regular atmosphere the body feels relative hypoxia so it induces all those factors so I, i'm really using it for two first of all i'm using it to answer your question is small vessel important <laughs> and telling you there's actually a super treatment for for this lack of 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 the uh, of of small vessels but also to tell you that it, it's not only on metformin and some things are what you know we call left field they came out they came out somewhere you thought it's the most ridiculous thing and all of a sudden you know there's something that 
also with trade-offs probably right also with trade-offs i mean how how many times you can do it how much can you repeat it and is there an age or a condition where actually the oxidative stress is going is not going to be beneficial but i'll tell you it's pretty good yeah the, you know in cardiology there is some data showing pre-treatment ischemia helps outcomes you know by before you do a procedure you do some you do an ischemic manipulation and then post procedure they do better so it's probably exactly exactly you upgrade the regulation and you increase the resiliency and i didn't know about the hyperbaric oxygen because i have a lot of patients that ask me about it so that's really great information yeah uh, i i want to say uh, something else about retforming and this is not in order so you'll have to edit it but you know we have all those clinical data on metformin and something really interesting happened during covid there were nine papers from all over the world that showed that people were on metformin had basically half the hospitalization and death and then there were a uh, control studies that took covid patients and gave them metformin within three days of being positive and it also decreased hospitalization death and long covid by about 50% and the point is when because a uh, metformin is a gerotherapeutics because it targets uh, other hallmarks of aging like the immune the 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 immune decline okay among other things then you see that metformin is good for many things or basically for aging and wh- what about uh supplements like uh berberine or resveratrol spermidine what, what's your opinion about these because because we got a lot of patients that are interested in these as gerotherapeutic supplements um so for me uh First of all, their big advantage is that they support the economy, right? Buy, buy of all those supplements. Um, the the question that consumers should ask is, what is the evidence behind that? Um, lack of evidence doesn't mean that there is not not good, but it's still a hope and not a promise. And uh, and and certainly lack of evidence also may indicate that it's bad, and you wouldn't know. So if you want to go ahead, do a, a, a look at the clinical study. For me, clinical clinical study, not for me. The definition of clinical study is that you have to have a control, okay, a placebo control, um, or or another agent as a, as a control. And if it's a double-blind study, it's it's great. If it's crossover, it's even better. But you have to have a data to see if it's working in my mind. And and many of those things haven't been shown anything. I have a paper out there that gives resveratrol up to five grams to elderly people, and there's very little change that I've seen. Really, nothing significant. Although there were significant results, but wasn't significant clinically um so there's lots out there that could be good um but 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 it may not but this is my real problem there is a guy brian johnson you know brian johnson i yeah i've heard of brian right and uh brian johnson is good for a field because it 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 gets attention but uh also um uh, 
it's a problem how to handle him because he's doing some things that we think are unsafe. One of them, he takes 105 supplements and medications, 105. Um, and if you look at those 105, you might understand why he takes each one of them. And in his mind, it's going to be either additive or synergistic. But in fact, it can be antagonistic too. Okay? And I think this is something that lacks. We don't know how medication interacts with each other, but we have a lot of data, including on his 105 supplements, who can be interacted with one another. So, uh, so one thing is whether the medication works, and the second thing is when you take a lot of them, what does he does? And sometimes he does the opposite and not additive. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, by definition, that's a tremendous amount of stuff that you're just taking. And, you know, we, we don't know if that, and, you know, like you're saying, we don't know what it's, what it's doing. You know, there's no way to know that because, you know, who's ever studied so many different supplements and medications? Right. So I guess the question we'll ask you at this point, is there anything that you have, that you do take because you believe and you have the studies that support it? Uh, do you take metformin? Do you take any other supplements? And have you changed your lifestyle based on the studies on your <clears throat> centenaries that you have done? Yeah. Um, so um, I'm, I'm doing... Um, I'm doing two things. Oh, well, first of all, uh, exercise, nutrition, uh, sleep, and uh, social connectivity, okay? Not only I'm working on them, but I'm trying to maximize them, okay? If I have 7,000 steps, I'll do 3,000 more, okay? Uh, there's always more than, than you can do. Uh, I'm a counsel on a new... Um, medicine society and actually I, I i think maybe you you should join that it's called the healthy longevity medicine society it's an international society it was formed last week the president and co-president are uh, two incredible women one is in singapore and one is in shanghai although she's moving to she moved to israel yesterday um but they are uh, creating data for longevity they have they create their own longevity clinic create data for longevity clinic and educate people uh, a future physician there's lots of longevity physician you know what's out there what we know what we don't know uh, there's cme courses there's uh grand rounds or or case case studies every every few weeks um and, and so I'm very excited that we're preparing, you know, the consequences of our research and trying to make it actually uh, responsible and, and conservative, you know. Um, and for me, conservative is not, I mean, metformin, people say metformin has no indication for aging. Well, you can, you can repurpose any drug that is FDA approved and is safe, right? So, I mean, we have many things that we actually uh, can do. And then conservative is something very subjective. If you're conservative or not, but we're we're not there yet. 
So I'm I'm taking metformin, and I'm also doing a, a intermittent fasting. And I, and I want to explain why I'm doing intermittent fasting. It's not because of my centenarians, it's because of my my rats, uh, because we uh, the the experiment that I've done when I started my career was like everybody else. It's it's our our positive uh, control is you take uh, animals brothers half of them eat whatever they want the other half get sixty percent of that okay and those that are caloric restricted they live much much healthier and like forty percent longer okay instead of dying in two years they die in three years you know pretty much really a ma- a major effect and people said okay you have to have less for la- breakfast lunch and dinner. But that's not what what we've done. We brought all the food in the morning, and they were hungry. They ate all the food, and if we give them the food throughout the day, little food throughout the day, they don't live longer. So fasting is important. Okay. So the idea that we need to spend less time eating, you know, Walter Longo is doing a five days fast. I don't know three times a year, right? There's a lot of variability of what you could do with fasting. But I, I think fasting for aging is very, very important thing. And intermittent fasting is one of the easiest intervention to do. Most people, not all, but most people can do it. It's like finish dinner at eight o'clock. Uh, you can have coffee in the, mor- uh, in the morning without sugar or milk. You can have water. You can have, you know, diet sodas. And 16 hours later, you can have lunch. And even if you feel like, oh, I'm hungry now. Okay, you have an hour to go. What are you going to break? <laughs> um, so I, I think many people feel it's easy. We'll never know if it increased lifespan, but there's lots of obvious changes that are happening, um, including weight loss more in men than women. But it, it's not for weight loss. It's really for aging. Uh, I can tell you from a cardiology point of view the Mayo Clinic have taken 250,000 EKGs and gave them to AI people, okay? And all of a sudden, it became a cardiac biomarker. It tells you 100% if you're a male and female. Oh, I read this. This is amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. I always knew if my patients are male and female because I saw the name, right? <laughs> it's not always, but but they do it. And when when you ask, how how do you know that? I, I don't have an answer. No, the cardiologists don't really know what is there in the waves that does it, but you can you can do it. So I'm 100% male, but also the age of your muscle, okay? Now, now let, let's make sure the age of the muscle doesn't mean that the next day you're not going to have a coronary and destroy it, right? But 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 the age of the muscle. So when I was 58 years old, I had an EKG at my at the Mayo Clinic, and my uh, biological age was 55. So I was three years younger. What I've done then is basically exercise mainly. Since then. I started metformin about the same year, and before COVID, I started intermittent fasting. And last I've been in the Mayo Clinic, I was 68, and my uh, biological uh, age was 58, right? So I was now 10 years younger, 
And I believe for me, and it's it's only for me, okay, it's N equal one, uh, but for me, I, I kind of saw it as a sign that the intervention uh, worked with both those things. That's, that's, yeah, we believe those things also. So, and I, and, and, and the data on the EKG AI is, is amazing because I've read a lot about this and it, uh, it apparently can even predict your, how long you're going to live. I don't know how it does that. Right. Well, that, that's what you, so you can train, you can train those uh, data on just biological versus chronological age. Uh, okay. Or uh, in, in other words, you have the data. So do you fall? higher or lower on the curve. Right. But more important is to take the data and have information that people who died and see really what's the biomarker, what the what how the biomarker predicts longevity. And they also predict, I mean, how many years left and it also can predict that. Again, I'm always worried about the cardiac ones because, you know, they're bicycle riders three hours a day that get this massive coronary <laughs> and, uh, and so you you have to adjust for a few things but uh yeah and and then lastly it you know one i think one of the major things about this work is that if you decrease uh morbidity at the end of life there there should be an amazing uh, savings of, of money from the healthcare system, you know, that, uh, because if you're sick for all those years, if you're not improved in health span versus in, you know, there must be an incredible at the, you know, that if everyone did, did this, you know, the, 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 the health cost savings will be astronomical, I think. Well, you're absolutely right. And in fact, we started, I, I told you that our centenaires don't only live longer, they have a compression of morbidity. The CDC have looked at the medical cost in the last two years of life of somebody who died over the age of 100 to 70. It's third the cost. Okay. And and those people- That's amazing. Those, That's a measure of the benefits of health right. Right, right. So we called it longevity dividend. But but this is where it becomes astronomical. There is a professor of economy in London School of Economy, Andrew Scott, who comes and say, you're out of your mind. You're so underestimating. We say, why, why we're underestimating? He said, because you're talking about uh, the dollars in the two years, right? The medical costs. That's what you're talking. But just a minute. Okay, so those guys are not in the hospital. What are they doing? They're traveling, they're shopping, they're buying houses for their grandkids and kids. So from economy value, we're talking about, and he has a number, $380 trillion by the year 2030 if we extend health span even by two years. Look, health span is such a big deal of the economy of every country we really cannot afford not to start making progress there. I agree. Uh, 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 in France, they're they're arguing about one year of when people retire. Oh God. <laughs> you know, this oh would make God. a huge difference. You know, you could retire at 70, 75. You know, why not work? Uh, exactly. And I and I think the, the major le lesson in centenaires is maybe not how are they now, but how happy and productive they were at any age when they're healthy it, it's really the health that causes the bad quality of life but you're if you're healthy even at age 100 
you have good you have good life and that's the other thing at the end of life are people happier you know is that a, is are they happier well that was going to be my question to you when you're not necessarily at the end of life but the centenarian do they have a different uh, outlook at life or not throughout their lives is that part of do you look at their personalities yes and yes. So, so there, there are two answers here. And I have to say, I was on a podcast with uh, Sanjay Gupta uh, just a few weeks ago. And he says, you know, my father, uh, when he worked, I said, this guy is such a miserable old man. I don't know what will happen to him at retirement. And he said, my father is now 88 years old. And I asked him, so how, you know, How's life? And he said, you know, this year was like the best year ever in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I heard a podcast with Jane Fonda who said, you know, it's much better from the inside than from the outside. When I was younger, I thought if I'm 85, I'm going to be so miserable. She said, no, it's it's not so bad. So, so bad. But there's a reason for that. So um, I'll, I'll give you this example which, which hit me because we... We have like three papers about personality. The personality of centenarians is great. Is they're hopeful, they're extrovert, they're, you know, lots of good stuff. And of course, people say that's why they're there, okay? Um, but, but you know, we know about personality um, basically until age 60, maybe, maybe now a little bit, a, a bit, a bit longer. And we said personality doesn't change. So, so let me give you this story. Uh, um, um, some some people are say, are telling me you have to see this centenarian is so great. All all the centenarians are great. I I know, but they said no. You have to meet him. So I'm meeting this guy, 104 years old, really a great guy. Okay, I'm sitting. I'm having this beautiful conversation with him. Uh, uh, he's philosophical. He's grateful. He doesn't complain about his daughter-in-law or any anything else. Right. So it's just this great thing, and. I'm leaving the room and I'm bumping into his son, 82 years old, okay? <laughs> and I'm telling the son what I just told you. And he looks in my eyes and he said, you should have seen the son of a bitch when he was my age. He was a miserable, <laughs> miserable guy. And then you discover that personality actually changes. And think of it, they, I mean, they somewhere, sometime retire, they lost their spouse, they moved to a house, they moved to a facility. Okay, there's a lot of environment changes that they had to adapt. And in the meantime, no matter what we think, they get older in their brain too, right? It, it became older. So it reminded me of a, of a, a study they've done in University of Pennsylvania where they took young and old people and they showed them slides. Some slides were good islands in the Caribbean, sunset, whatever, and others were really bad, uh, pizza with cockroaches, things like that. And they asked them to recall what they've seen. And the young people recalled more and from everything. And the old people recall less, but mainly the good things. Okay. So there's some adaptation. I'm waiting for that <laughs> to know, <laughs> to remember only the, the, the good things. And I think maybe that's how it works for the people who are at the end of their life and they're pretty happy, right? If they're, if they're not sick. Uh, 
So I think there's a biology, there's a psychology, and there's changes that uh, it brings me back to the first point. When you see a centenarian, you don't know if what you see is the uh, old part that killing them or the good things that 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 brought them alive. And that's why we have now a longitudinal study where we can see what happens uh, to their personality also. Yeah, I think that uh, I think there was a saying. I, I don't know if I'm misquoting this from Aristotle, where he said at 80 he stopped thinking about women, so he started living his life, and sort of. <laughs> so, and we can't end it without talking about the microbiome. Of course, I read a recent study that supercentenaries have the microbiome of a 20-year-old. Is there anything that you're investigating, looking at? Then, if that is that true. I'm I'm I have to say I'm not because it's hard for us. It's not part of our style. We're going to their homes. It's not part of us to tell them poop, to poop. Okay, right. <laughs> quite, quite frankly, you're not asking that. We're not asking, but you know the the remember we talked about the hallmarks of aging and what 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 changes with aging and if you fix it, your animals will live longer. And, and healthier, there's no, for me, there's no proof yet. And I, I'm, I'm ready for that. I'm not against it, but there's no proof that this microbiome is really a cause and, and, and could change, could change the, I think it's a, a, could change aging. I think it's an attractive hypothesis. Um, and uh, whether, the biology of aging is affected the microbiome or whether microbiome affect the biology of aging is for me a question of interest. Um, and the second thing is that uh, I think uh, sauerkraut and kimchi are probably the one the things that are changing microbiome most <laughs> more, more than other things. So maybe, maybe that's the advice for all of us, but the, the, the microbiome, you, you know, microbiome really doesn't change with age so much until you get to an age uh, to an age where uh, you get antibiotics or you move to another place it's it's not so simple to identify what influence a microbiome that doesn't mean that there's no better or worse microbiome for health Okay, I, I'm. I'm just giving you. I'm. I'm not there yet from a geroscience perspective. I'm not on the boat of uh, of microbiome because I'm lacking the geroscience connection. You know, it clearly helps in so many yeah. ways. Well, maybe that the you know the centenarians don't get as sick. They don't get antibiotics as frequently. They don't get chemotherapy as frequently. So, you know, that may affect their microbiome. Or their microbiome was like that, you know, like that because their environment was like that when they started. I mean, one of the interesting thing about the microbiome that it doesn't change, really, it doesn't change with age. It's as if you're stuck with your original microbiome, okay? What was the original microbiome of 100 years old different than what it was for us? So I, I, I don't know. So, you know, this has been really a truly fascinating, interesting, and we're 
deeply honored to have had you today. And I'm sure this is a, a field that will continue to grow and change and we'll hopefully have you many more times to tell us, you know, all the new findings and new re personal research and the world of research. And we'll definitely participate, you know, in this new venture with, uh, with this. The Healthy Longevity Medicine Society. Yeah, we'll definitely join that. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, thank you. Thank you also. Look, we're, we have to spread the Gospels, right? I mean, uh, we, one of the things that we're missing is the public is still not recognizing that we can maximize our health. Um, and so what you're doing is very important and, and giving me this opportunity to talk like that was really great. And I wish you luck and, and good health. <laughs> if you are new to the show, welcome. And if you are returning... We are so grateful for your participation and support. We hope you go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the show, leave feedback, write a review, or send questions. They love questions and look at every question that is submitted. The content of the Sicilian Secret Diet are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be a medical diagnosis or treatment advice. A doctor-patient relationship is not created and any questions related to your specific physical or mental health should be directed to your healthcare practitioner. So hello, and thank you for joining Sandra and Giovanni for another episode of the Sicilian Secret Diet Plan Podcast.